0: Is great shall be it's no
1: wonder that Cecil B. DeMille produced and directed a blockbuster movie drawn from it, The Ten Commandments, starring Charlton Heston. And Steven Spielberg and company did the same in the 90s with their DreamWorks production, The Prince of Egypt. The book of Exodus has everything Hollywood would ever want, writes Reed Lessing. It's full of twists and turns that constantly shock and surprise. Think about it. It's got a bush that's on fire but doesn't burn up. The ten plagues, including frogs all over the place. Total darkness, water turned to blood. It's got the Passover, the Red Sea, the men in the wilderness, the Ten Commandments, and the golden calf. And then there's Moses himself, one of the greatest figures in all of history, from his dramatic rescue in a basket in the Nile to his encounter with God on Mount Sinai. But more important than any of that is that here God reveals his name, that is, who he is and his characteristics and how he thinks about us and his plan to be with us and to bring us safely home to him. And that is what makes Exodus perhaps the most important book in the Old Testament. It was written that we might know the Lord. He, not Moses, he is the key figure in the book. We meet this tough and tender, mighty and merciful God who is all of these things for us. We meet a God who is devoted to us, who hears our pleas and who rescues us from our slavery and our death. And that's what makes Exodus our story. What Jesus did for the Israelites in the past, he is doing for us right now. When the book of Exodus opens, the Israelites faced a life of hard service to a cruel master. And then they died. But God rescued them from that feudal existence. Our life. To quote a hymn writer, "Our life is not a deathward drift from futile birth." Oh, I know. Many people today think so. They think life is an accident and we're here by chance. So, seize the moment and have some fun while you can, because soon enough, this series of setbacks we call life will end at the casket. You work hard, and then you die. As Kansas sang. All we are is dust in the wind. Yes, so many live that way. But Jesus rescued us from this existence. He rescued us from our slavery to sin. And now he leads us to the promised land. And he daily provides everything we need. He took us from slavery to freedom. From sorrow to joy. From mourning to festival. And from darkness to light. Yes, what God did for Moses and the Israelites, he does for us. When we are faced with an overwhelming flood of pain and problems and perplexities, God shows up for us. And he fights for us. Every nation that came after Israel with chariots or horses or weapons of war, every nation that opposed Israel was bound to fail. Just as every enemy that comes after us, is bound to fail. After all, as the Apostle Paul writes, if God is for us, who can be against us? So, let's jump into the story. But first, we begin with prayer. Jesus, you are our great deliverer. Be with us on this journey we call life, and bring us safely to that home you have promised us. Bless our study of this portion of your word. Let your word be the light that guides our way. Exodus 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Never preach on the list, a veteran preacher once said. They're deadly preach on the stories. That's what will hold your listeners' attention. Exodus begins with a list, a list of Jacob's sons, and with a funeral. So we might be tempted to just jump over these first verses and get to the exciting stuff. But at the end of the list is something remarkable. The Israelites, who numbered about 70 people when they came to Egypt, and they came to survive a famine. They now had so increased in numbers that the land was filled with them. These opening verses form a bridge with the book of Genesis, and they cover about 400 years. It's been 400 years since Joseph, Jacob's son, Abraham's great-grandson, 400 years since Joseph. His story takes up the last 19 chapters of Genesis. 400 years since Joseph had been sold into slavery by his own brothers and ended up in Egypt. 400 years since, through a a series of God-ordained events, Joseph became the second most powerful man in Egypt. And 400 years since Joseph brought his father Jacob and his brothers to live with him in Egypt so they would survive this famine. 400 plus years go by in these opening seven verses of of Exodus, and the tribe of 70 people has now become a great nation, numbering in the millions. You see, God has kept his promise to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. On his deathbed, Joseph had told his family that God would also keep his promise to take them back to the land of Canaan, the land promised to Father Abraham. And he insisted that they would promise him that they would take his bones back with them when they returned. It it was Joseph's confession of faith in a God who keeps his word. What God says he will do. And now, 400 plus years later, God's promise was about to be fulfilled. I know... There are days for each of us when it seems that God is waiting too long to keep his promises to us, and then we are tempted to think he's not really there for us. I'm guessing that Joseph had days like that too, when he was sitting in a pit thrown there by his brothers, or in a prison locked up because of the lies of a deceitful and unfaithful woman. The book of Exodus will strengthen our trust. Strengthen our confidence that God will never leave us and that he will keep every promise. Well, the stage is now set. God has a plan for his people and two Egyptian kings, they called them pharaohs, will try to derail those plans. And we will see the power of our God. We continue with verse 8. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look! Look! This Pharaoh said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So the Egyptians put slave masters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. The more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Notice the repetition of the words worked and ruthlessly and labor and harsh. Most conservative Bible scholars date the Exodus at 1446 B.C. That's based on 1 Kings 6, verse 1, where we are told that Solomon began to build the temple in the 480th year after the Israelites had come out of Egypt. Historians are pretty well agreed that year was 966 B.C. So if you add 480 to 966 that puts the exodus at 1446 B.C. That lines up with what we know from Egyptian history. The Hyksos dynasty ruled Egypt up until 1523, which would be about the time of Moses' birth, a little before. That, that dynasty, which was actually a foreign dynasty, was then overthrown, and the Hyksos people were driven out of Egypt by Amos I, who sets up a new dynasty. So if our dates are correct, that would make Amos I, this Egyptian ruler mentioned here, who has no loyalty to Joseph or Joseph's people, called the Hebrews. And he very well might be suspicious of these Hebrews because they are Semitic, like the Hyksos, whom he had just driven out of the land. So, you might wonder, why why do the Egyptians not just let these Hebrews go if they don't trust them? Or why don't they even drive them out of the land? end of threat, right? The answer Brex. The answer was Brex. Imagine stomping around all day in the mud. Then stro- then throw straw in the mud and stomp around some more. Then you shovel the mud into forms. Then you carry the forms full of mud on your head to the ovens, hot, hot ovens where the bricks were fired. And then after the bricks are fired and they cool, you put them back on your head and you carry them to the job site. You see, the Egyptians needed bricks for their vast building projects, and they need the Hebrews to make the bricks. It's no wonder they didn't want them to leave. Egyptians considered brickmakers to be dirtier than pigs. Caked in mud and dust and sweat, they rarely let them bathe. Historians estimate that two decades of doing this kind of work, making bricks and your arms and legs, would become useless. And soon you died. The Egyptians drove them hard. The text says worked them ruthlessly. Day after day, week after week, week year after year with no time off ever ever. Life was hard for an Israelite. We're all slaves to selfishness and sin and behind our misery is that ancient serpent the devil. He is the fierce taskmaster who drives us ruthlessly. But Jesus came so that we would not be stuck in a perpetual cycle of misery and pain. He came To set us free. Yes, life was hard for an Israelite in Egypt, and it was about to get harder. Verse 15 Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him, but if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all the people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Pharaoh issues an edict. The Hebrew midwives are to kill the baby boys. But two brave Hebrew midwives, Shipra and Puah, outwit him. When the Pharaoh asks, Why are all these Hebrew baby boys around? They say, Well, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. These babies are born before we even get there. We don't we don't have a chance to put them to death. Don't miss the irony here. Pharaoh thinks he's dealing shrewdly with the Hebrews, the Israelites, in reality. These two Hebrew midwives are dealing shrewdly with him. Well, that didn't work, so Pharaoh issues a second edict. Everyone, not just the midwives, everyone is to kill every baby boy as soon as it's born by throwing him in the river. The Egyptian rulers are coming down hard on God's people. This will not end well for these Egyptian rulers. Why? Because the Lord, Yahweh, The God we will come to know in this book, the Lord, fights for his people. It is against this backdrop of harsh, forced labor and grisly genocide that Moses is born. Chapter 2. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the river bank. Pharaoh's daughter saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then the baby's sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she, the baby's mother, took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he, Moses, became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. A man from the tribe of Levi and his wife, also from the tribe of Levi, have a baby boy. They already have a daughter named Miriam, mentioned here, and a son named Aaron, whom we will hear about later. Not willing to throw her baby into the Nile, the mother hides him for three months. And when that is no longer possible, she fashions a basket, places her son in it, and hides it among the reeds in the section of the river where Pharaoh's daughter will come to bathe. The baby's sister, Miriam, stays close by to keep an eye on the basket and her little brother. In so doing, she's a beautiful picture of what the church is to be. Brothers and sisters carefully watching over one another. When Pharaoh's daughter found the baby crying, she felt sorry for it, just as you would expect. This, almost certainly, is what the baby's parents were hoping for. After all, they, they didn't just float the basket down the river. She, they put it in a specific place. Pharaoh's daughter knew her father's edict. She knew this child was to be drowned, but she couldn't be that heartless. And Pharaoh couldn't refuse his daughter. So again, mighty Pharaoh is outwitted, outwitted as one of these Hebrew boys whom he ordered to be killed instead becomes his adopted grandson. Miriam, thinking quickly, or maybe this was their plan all along, offers to find someone to nurse the baby. She finds the baby's own mother. And so Moses spends his early years with his biological family where they are able to teach him about the true God. When he grows older, his mother brings him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he becomes her son. She names him Moses, which means drawn out, because she said, I drew him out of the water. Do you see it? God uses ordinary people, Shifra, Pua, Moses' parents, Miriam, to carry out his plans of deliverance. Just as he still uses ordinary people like us to carry out his plans, his gracious, loving plans. So powerful is our Lord that he even uses the proud and mighty who reject him to serve his purposes. And so it begins. This amazing story of God delivering the Israelites. This story of God revealing to us who he is and how he also delivers us. Again, I want to give credit to the sources I'm using in this podcast series on Exodus. Two primary sources are the devotional book, Deliver Us, by Professor Reed Lessing, and the commentary from the People's Bible Commentary Series on Exodus by Professor Ernst H. Wentland. Next week, Moses flees Egypt. Not a great start, it would seem, to God's plan, but God's plan is always working out. If you find these podcasts helpful, share them with a friend and please join us next week. The peace of God which transcends all understanding will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.